Good morning. Well, turn to your neighbor and give them a knowing look. You know, don't touch them. They may be diseased. You know, they may be needing to walk through the streets going unclean. Unclean. How you doing? Happy Father's Day, as everyone has, uh, has mentioned. It's a great day. Uh, being a father is a great challenge. It's great difficulty. Uh, I do have a Father's Day sermon in m- the middle of my sermon. So it's like snuck in the middle. So uh, we'll talk about that a little bit, about being a father. Uh, wow, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, you know, here we are in our little mask, you know, wondering, is it all worth it? And I noticed that, you know, Martha didn't have a mask on for a little while, and I was, but didn't, didn't you, don't, don't you appreciate the benefits? Like, just for a moment there, while we were singing, I thought, you know, I'm kind of getting a steam facial. Uh, <laughs> my skin feels, you know, youthful and refreshed. Uh, <laughs> so, well, so good to see you today. So good to see you. And uh, we're, we're looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us. Today, I'm gonna, we're still in the life of David, and we're talking to them. I've entitled today, Run, David, Run. And David's run a lot in his life. Uh, you know, he started out his life as a peaceful young shepherd boy. At about 14 or 15, Samuel shows up at his house and ends up anointing him to be the next king of Israel. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens over a period of about 15 years, uh, you know, which in our timing... It's a long, long time, right? I mean, when you look back 15 years, it went by like that. But when you're thinking about it's going to take 15 years, that's a a long time. Uh, So David is now, so he ran and then he's he's king for a while. And now he's having to run again because his son Absalom has uh, decided to try to take over the kingdom. So he's in the middle of that. Uh, we started talking about this last week, but he's in the middle of that, and he's uh, Absalom because of all, you know, we could go into all kinds of things about why this happened. David did a poor job of managing uh, crisis in his own home. Part of it is because he had like seven wives and, and a lot of concubines, so he had a lot of kids. And I don't know if you know this, but it's hard to manage one family. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. You ever had trouble with one? Uh, then, you, then when you start adding more to three, it just, it just, it made it more complicated. It, it just, it adds dynamics. You can't deny that. It adds dynamics that make it more complicated. It made it more complicated and David didn't manage it well. You know, last week I said, uh, uh, Tina doesn't want me to say it again. Uh, and I won't say it again. I said, I called Donald Trump a name. And, and here's the reality about stuff. I mean, he's, he's done some really good things, but I cringe when he speaks. <laughs> or when he tweets. You know, if we could just break his tweeter fingers. I, that may be an offense. I might get arrested for that. I really didn't mean that, okay? Uh, <laughs> but... What, 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 is, what we're all capable of, we can be really good in one area and really bad in another area. Yes. M- most of us are. Most of us aren't 100% good at everything. We have areas of weakness, and so we recognize that. We, 
we have areas of weakness. So David was a he was a he was a great stat, uh, uh, strategist for war. Uh, he was a great king in, in building a coalition uh, and creating a kingdom, but he was a lousy father. And he kind of brought it on himself. So, so today is running, today, David is running from Absalom again, and uh, his life is in crisis again. Uh, we all go through crisis. You know, and I've said this many times, I want to cheer you up. Life is a series of problems, and then you die. When you quit having problems, you're dead. So we all struggle with the death of a loved one, loss of people that we love and care about. It's inevitable. It happens. We lose them. Uh, A divorce. Uh, Sickness. You know, you you get a diagnosis it just changes things it's a crisis uh loss of a job you lose a job then you can easily go into spiral into some level of financial ruin uh, if you're not able to get a job again quickly uh, I, I had a friend who at about the age of 40 or 45 lost his job and he was right at that age where he was really too old for the companies to want him. Now, 45 is not old, but when you can hire a young guy out of college at a reduced rate, <laughs> you know, they, they're, they're always thinking economics. They're not thinking, well, here's a guy with experience and knows what he's doing. He's like, oh, well, this guy's 20000 cheaper. And, uh, and with the loss of that job, his life unraveled. Financially, he struggled. He struggled to get another job. He had to do a lot of, lot of, he worked hard and he worked doing a lot of piecemeal jobs and things that were not his area of expertise, but he couldn't get a job in his area of expertise. So he did all kinds of things. In the middle of that, his wife resented that and she divorced him. His, his life just became, and that's what happens often in a life crisis, that we, we do something, we, something happens to us, we, something's done to us, uh, and we and we get in a crisis, uh, financial ruin, family problems. You've had have you had any family problems? Then you don't have children, <laughs> or they're too young. Give them time. Uh, betrayal. Anybody been betrayed? Emotional hurts, disappointments. Been disappointed. Things didn't work out the way you expect them to work out. Anybody? Anybody? So, so Second Samuel chapter fifteen, verse thirteen. He's in the middle of a crisis. I've entitled this sermon just for, you know, run, David, run, which makes me think of Forrest Gump for some reason. Uh, A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. So the fickle public opinion has changed, and they have decided Absalom would be a better king for whatever reason. Then David said to all of his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. Immediately, 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 he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. Now, David was not one to run from a fight. We know that as a teenager, when he was a shepherd, he killed a lion and a bear. And then he faced the bully Goliath when 
thousands of trained soldiers were not willing to <laughs> go against Goliath, he willingly did. And so he wasn't one to run from a fight. He did run from Saul. So why did he run from Saul? He wasn't afraid of Saul, but he ran from Saul to protect Saul. He ran from Saul so that there wouldn't end up being an altercation where Saul might end up being killed. Or David. So, but he was really protecting Saul. And then David is running from Jerusalem. He's running from, running from Jerusalem. The, the, this is interesting. You know what the name Jerusalem means? City of peace. It has never been. <laughs> it's never been. It's not now. It will be <laughs> when Jesus reigns, but it's, it's not the city of peace. So he says we must leave immediately or they'll overtake us and bring ruin to the city. So David is leaving because he doesn't want to see the city destroyed. If he stays in Jerusalem, uh, they're going to they're tear down the city and there's going to be innocent people that are going to lose conflict between David and his son. Innocent people are going to lose their lives. So he's saying, I'm going to get out of the city. I'm going to protect the city. I believe David had a greater understanding of the city of the Jerusalem other than just being a place where his government had its headquarters. I think he understood the spiritual significance of Jerusalem. If you don't believe that, you should read the Psalms because he talks about Jerusalem a lot. Here's in Psalm 122, verse 6. He says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Because David recognized that, yes, the uh, temple was there. And, and there, there, it was... Then, in David's reign, it was just the tent, the tabernacle from the wilderness. It was just a, a little makeshift. <laughs> it wasn't a big, grand temple. It was a, just a tabernacle. But it had the Ark of the Covenant there. And it had the Holy of Holies there. And so he, he recognized this is, this, is, this is important. This isn't mine this is, this is for the people of God. This is for the, so, so he flees because he's trying to save the lives of the innocent ones uh, from destruction. Often when we fight among ourselves, it's the little ones who suffer the most. Have you noticed that? Too often, I've seen too many people put their kids in the middle of a divorce and use them as wedges and buffers. You, when you go through a divorce, if you go through the divorce, it's a very difficult season and a very difficult time. But, but you need to protect the little ones as you go through it. You need to not use them to get your way. And the problem is, here's the problem. I don't know if it's just a problem with me, but it might be a problem with you too. We're selfish as all get out. And we don't like to lose. We like to get our way. And we will sometimes use whatever means possible 
to get a victory, and sometimes it's too costly. So I'm just saying, be careful. What David did, he's protecting innocent people. We need to work hard when we're in the midst of a conflict, when you have, when you have a crisis, when you don't get along with someone, when you argue with someone. Don't bring the kids into it. They don't have the emotional ability to manage it. You're, you're wounding them. And it's irresponsible. When we go through life-changing crises, we need to protect the children from our childishness, our anger, and our retaliation. So then David's running. So why is David running? The king's officials answered him, saying, Your servants are ready to go wherever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. This is going to be interesting later on to find out why he did that and how that works out. So the king set out with all of the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All of his men marched past him, along with all the Carathites and the Pelethites and the 600 Gittites who had accompanied them from Gath marching before the king. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner in exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with, with us when I do not know where I'm going. So he says to this man, you just showed up yesterday, and now you're having to, having to you know, run for your life. Just go back. It's okay. But Ittai replied to the king, as surely as the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, what, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, go ahead and march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. So David left Jerusalem to see who was on his side. Because he's in a situation where he's had very close advisors have betrayed him. So he doesn't know who is with Absalom and who is with him. And so he has, he has left Jerusalem and those that are willing to go with him are identifying with him as being on his side. They had, they had to pick a side. Now, I'm sure there were people who lived in the city that weren't in leadership, that weren't part of the kingdom. They're just people that just stayed in their houses. It's possible that everybody in Jerusalem that was on David's side went with him. It's not clear, but it's important. He, was, he wanted to see who was on his side. Jesus said this, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Jesus says it's important that you identify with me, that you identify as a follower of Christ. So if you identify as believing in me, I'm going to identify with believing in you. So he claims us as his own because we take our identification in him. And I like the way Paul talks about his identification in Christ. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, which I say that a lot, I know, so it's, it's kind of like all of them, but it just depends, you know. It's your favorite when you need it. Right. Paul says this. He's talking about where he had been as a, as a follower of the law and a keeper of the law and what he had arrived in his education and his his, uh, his fame, 
how he was known, how he was perceived, his education, all of that together. As a Jew, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing, surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So he said, I've lost all those things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He said, my identification is no longer in those tags that men give. My identification is not in those external things, those things that I prided myself in, that I valued myself, my achievements, my, my accolades. My, my identification is not in those things. It is in Christ. I'm found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So how do you define yourself? American? Texan? Oki? We'll be in prayer for you if you do. Aggie? Longhorn? You know, when we painted this uh, inadvertently, uh, Longhorn Orange, there was some uprising among the Aggies. Uh, a, or, you know, a bear, a Baylor bear. And I've, if you were ever a Marine, if you were in the Army, when you got out, you're like, <laughs> good riddance. Seems like, I'm not, maybe not for you, but okay. But seems like Marines, they're just Marines from then on. They're, they're messed up. <laughs> White? Black? Paul said, compared to knowing Christ, Compared to knowing Christ, my identity is not in those things. It's secondary. Yeah, I am those things. I am educated. I was a Jew among Jews. I did all those things. I have that experience. I have that reality. But my identity is not there any longer. Now my identity is in Christ. That is all secondary. I'm, I found myself. I love that. Paul says, I, like, you know, people are always looking for themselves. I need to go find myself. Boy, what a disappointment. <laughs> what happened? I, well, I found myself. It uh, wasn't so hot. Paul said, you know what? I lost myself, but I found him. And in finding him, I found myself. I found my purpose. I found my direction. I found eternity. I found a family. I found fellowship. I found a father being found in him. So in a crisis, I want to tell you one of the things you want to do in a crisis is one of the things you want to do in a crisis, you want to gather your friends and allies around you to help you for the coming fight. What do we do in a crisis? We gather people that, that like us and agree with us. David's kind of winnowing out the crowd. He said, okay, who's on my side? Who's willing to go through hardship with me? Who's willing to cross the the brook Kidron and get out of the comfort of the palace, get out of the comfort of the city. We're going to go out to the wilderness. Who's in, who's ready to go camping for a couple of months? You love camping? I don't. Okay. 
So the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on towards the wilderness. Zadok was there too. Zadok's the priest. And all the Levites were with him carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, if I'm not pleased with, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready to do whatever seems good to him. Let him do whatever seems good to him. Now, here's what's interesting. So David's the king. It took a long time to, for him to become king. The way he became king is that Samuel anointed him to be king. David never asked for it. He wasn't clinging to trying to be king. So David's not fighting to remain king. He didn't ask for it. God chose him. So he's saying, hey, if God's unchosen me, so be it. Now, here's the great thing about God. Once he chooses you, you don't get unchosen. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad God doesn't wake up tomorrow and say, huh, you're kind of irritating me. Thump. You know, but he doesn't. We're chosen. We don't get unchosen. So he's not fighting to remain king. Jesus said this about power. Jesus said, you'd have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the ones who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. <laughs> Pharaoh says, you know, I mean, not Pharaoh. Pilate. <laughs> Sir with a P, it was close. Uh, Pilate says, you know, I have authority to to kill you. And Jesus says, well, really, you don't. You wouldn't have any authority if it wasn't given to you by God. Any authority you're given in life doesn't really belong to you. You're just a steward of that authority to use it to do God's will. You know, so any authority that you're given as a husband, if you're given authority, you can't in a marriage, you know, when, when we read the verses in Ephesians about submission, one of the things I always try to help men understand is submission. Biblical submission is never commanded. That's dominance. Biblical submission is always voluntary. If somebody doesn't voluntarily submit, it's not submission. How did you, did Jesus beat you into giving your life to Christ? Well, kind of, but not really. You submitted. Submission. So as a husband, as a father, you have authority as a parent, as a boss, as a teacher, as a police officer, as a DMV worker. Seem to be some of the most unhappy people in the world. I'm not sure what the deal is there. You can use your power. See, we all, all in life, we get a little power. And have you ever noticed some people, they get a little power and they just want to beat everybody over the head with it. They, they abuse. It doesn't matter. They've got a little bit of authority. They can hold you up a little bit longer. They can, they can delay you. They can be the return lady at TJ Maxx. 
and, and how they do, go about their job, the little bit of authority that they have, they, they can grant you that you can return this item that was damaged or too small, or they can question you. What, how did this happen? I mean, so everybody's got a little bit of authority. So how are you going to use that little bit of authority? The receptionist that keeps you from going into the doctor. Every, so how are you going to use principal, teacher, pastor, elder? How do you use that authority? Jesus used his authority to set free Jesus came to set the captives free. He also used his authority to correct and confront. Jesus did overturn the tables of the money changers in the temple, which if you were a money changer, that was kind of devastating, right? So he confronted the abuse of power that he saw, he confronted, but he also used his power to empower, his, his, his authority to empower, to strengthen, to build up, to encourage. And finally, what did Jesus use his power to do? To do God's will. He uses his authority to do God's will. So you can use your authority to do God's will, or you can use your authority to bully, berate, control, tear down, destroy. How are you going to use your authority? David is, is trying to gently use his authority. He's, being, he's gentle about it. He's going across. He said, hey, who wants to come with me? You know. So here's a Father's Day message to you. Right here in the middle. Or in the two-thirds. Or the three-fourths. I don't know. Ephesians 6-4. Have you ever heard this verse? It's a great verse. Fathers... Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. That's a great exasperate. What does that mean? It means to provoke to anger. So we're saying, so is it saying never make your children mad? <laughs> Good luck with that. What it's saying is don't make your children mad needlessly. Don't frustrate them for the fun of it, for the joy of being able to push them around because they're kids. So how do you do that? How do you not exasperate your children? Here's the Father's Day sermon in three points. Because, you know, every sermon has to have three points. So here in the middle of this sermon is three points. You exasperate your children by making a big deal out of things that aren't a big deal. How do you know what's a big deal and what's not a big deal? You have to become a grandparent. <laughs> it takes 20 years. <laughs> it takes a while. Or a couple of kids. But think about it. A lot of times, man, we're just, we're just pecking at stuff. We're just... We're wearing it out on this stuff that, in the scheme of things, is not that big a deal. So, you know, you know I, so ask yourself, you know, ask yourself, is this as big a deal as we're making it? Is this as important for this fight that we have every night or every afternoon or every three days? Is this worth it? Because the answer is probably not. Don't exasperate your children. 
do not, you exasperate your children if you don't understand the temperament of your child and you try to treat all your children the same because even though they may have come from the same place with the same parents, they're wolf, they're not woefully, they're greatly different. And if you, you know, if you try to discipline the second one like you discipline the first one, you might break their heart. Or you, might not, you may need to break their heart because the first one was all you had to do was look at them. And they were like, oh, no, I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But the second one, after about 15 spankings, they're like looking at you like, when I get older, I'm taking you out, old man. Just give me a chance. And you think, that's kind of scary for a three-year-old. I don't know. (laughs) So you have to understand every child's different. So you have to learn. As as the the one who's over that child, you have to learn what is it, what is their strengths? What is their weakness? What's their insecurities? Where do they need to be built up, built up? Where do they need to be encouraged? Where do they need to be helped? Where do the, you know, the Bible says train up a child in the way that it should go. And that doesn't mean if you take them to church, then they'll never stop going to church. That isn't what it means. It means train up a child according to their bent, according to the way they are. Your, your kid has a way. And so what's amazing is that you two parents are going to have a kid, and he's not like either one of you. He's this, he's this uh, mixture of both of you that there was a catalyst involved that made it different. And so you, ha- you have to understand, okay, I can't react to this child because he's acting like me. You know, because you're really tempted. I, I really struggle with this. I wanted to beat me out of the kids. Not really beat them. I hope you understand that. Everybody watching on television, I didn't mean that. <laughs> Nobody's watching on television. It's 15 people on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> let's get this straight. <laughs> There's not a great TV audience out there, okay? <laughs> you need to be consistent. Third thing is you need to be consistent by not being controlled by your emotions. Amen. You can't teach your children to get their emotions under control by, by not having your emotions not under control. So discipline, if you discipline your children, you don't want, you don't want to punish your children, you want to discipline your children. Amen. There's a difference. Punishment is often done in the midst of anger. I'm punishing you for going against me. Discipline is, this is, is I'm going to work studiously to try to deal with this area that needs to be corrected in their life. And I'll, I'll admit, I failed at that gobs of time. My kids are here. They will tell you I failed at that. That sometimes I punished them because they just ticked me off. And I was like, here, don't ask me again. But you never did that. So we want to be consistent. David sent the ark back into the temple where it belonged because he felt like the ark belonged in the middle of Jerusalem, the center of worship of God for the people of Israel was the, was the ark of God in the temple. I would say this, in the midst of crisis, 
Keep God where he should be in the center of your life. It's not a time for running around and not paying attention to God. When you get in crisis, run to God. Put him in the center. Put him where he belongs. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and he was barefoot because he's mourning. And all the people with him covered their heads, too, and were weeping as they went up. Why is he weeping? He's got a lot to weep about. His own son is trying to destroy him. Uh, Trusted friends have turned against him. And it's hard not to think about the sea of regrets and failures that he has had in dealing with Absalom. That he's going up, he's thinking, oh, gosh, I I could have solved this 15 years ago with a conversation. I could have dealt with this, but my shame of my failure in my sexual sin and my, my rape of Bathsheba and then the murder of her husband, I, I hid myself away emotionally at a time when my family needed me. I could have, so, you know, he's just going through that, that, ugh, that wailing and gnashing of teeth. That regret, that, oh, why did I do that? Why didn't I see that? Why wasn't I smarter than that? Why, why, did I, why, did I let, why did I let my passions bring such destruction into my family? Uh, yes, I had, a, had moments of sexual pleasure that cascaded through my family as destruction. Not for a year, but for years. And he's still living with it. He's still dealing with it. He's got a sea of regrets. He's crying. You know what? Man, we've got this whole culture where it's not okay to, you know, stop crying. What? Why do you need to stop crying? Cry. It's okay to cry. Men, it's okay to cry. If, if you don't cry, you haven't had enough experiences yet. It's okay. it's okay. It's an emotion that God gave us. Sometimes David was, I mean, he was a man's man. He was no wimp. Let me see you kill a bear with your bare hands. And then say, say to David, well, you're a little emotional. <laughs> if you say that kind of backing up, I think you're kind of a sissy. You there, you know, it's okay to weep. He's weeping because he has a reason to weep. David wrote this psalm, Psalm 3, as his escaping. God, look, enemies past counting. Enemies spreading like mushrooms. Mobs of them around me roaring their mockery. Ha, no help for God from him. But you, God, shield me on all sides. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. You ground my feet, you lift my head high. With all my might, I shout up to God. His answers thunder from the holy mountain. I stretch myself out. I sleep. Then I'm up again, rested, tall and steady, fearless before the enemy mobs coming at me from all sides. Up, God, my God, help me. Slap their faces. First this cheek, then the other. Your fist harden their teeth. That's a prayer right there, isn't it? <laughs> he said, oh, and by the way, get them, God. Real help comes from God. Your blessing clothes your people. It's okay to cry, but it's even better to cry out to God. We know what's powerful about this to me. So David's given his complaint to God. He said, God, I'm in trouble. I'm surrounded. I need help. I need you to help me. And he cried out. It says he shouted out to God. 
So he's crying out really loud. He says, God thunders back to him. So he feels it in his heart. He feels it. It's in, you know, it's, there's a reality that's going on. And then he went to sleep. He says that. Then I went to sleep. I stretched myself out. I sleep. You know what that means? That means that he's not worrying. Because I've found it's very difficult to sleep and worry at the same time. So, so he got an answer from God. He believed God was his answer. Even though he didn't, the situation was way from being solved. But he believes that God is his resource and his help. And so he, he just gives it to God. He does everything that he can do, and then he trusts God with the victory. You will never worry your way to victory. You will just worry your way to despair and more sleepless nights. And then you'll struggle even more. So, what's the key to victory? The key to eventual victory is do everything that you can do right now. If there's something you can do to help solve it, so David begins to make plans because he's going to have to fight Absalom because Absalom is coming for a fight. He doesn't want to fight him, but he's planning. He's going to try to kill all these people, so how do I protect these people? How do I protect all of this? What, how do I do this? So he's, he begins to make plans, and we're going to see that later on. Uh, he did everything he could do. You use every resource at your disposal. You know, because a lot of times when you say, well, I'm trusting God. When you say, I'm trusting God, that doesn't mean you're doing nothing. What are you doing? Well, I'm trusting God. Well, we don't have any food on the table. What are you doing? I'm trusting God. Well, trust God and go to work. Trust God. What if you don't have a job? Then do something. But get out of your pajamas and get out of the bed and do something because God honors effort. Go do if if you go do something for somebody else. Go mow somebody else's yard. But do something. God honors that. He honors you. You say, "Well, I'm just trusting God." Well, trust God and put feet on your faith and start doing something. God honors when we sacrifice. So find a way to serve and serve. Use every resource at your disposal. Call all your friends. That's what David did. said, hey, everybody, come over. Come over. We've got trouble. Come over. Come on. I need some help. Everybody who's on my side, if you're on my side, come on, let's go. So he gathered all of his resources together. Then he prays. Then he prays. He says, oh, God, bust their teeth. <laughs> Slap them, slap them on one side and then slap them on the other. I, he's like, God, can I just be there when it happens? But he's, what's he praying? Lord, I'm in trouble. I don't know how, but Lord, you're my answer. Help me out of this situation. So, so he prays about it and then he goes to sleep. Why? Because he's given it to God. You have to trust God with the outcome. Because there's things that you can do, that you should do, and there's things that you can't do that only God can do. 
They're out of your hands. And so you do everything that you can do, everything that you should do, and then you pray and give it to God. You cast it upon the Lord, and then you don't take it back up. You stop worrying about it. You say, well, I've put this in the Lord's hands. You keep working. You keep doing everything you can do. But you rest in God. And he will help you through the crisis. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Some of you might be in the midst of a crisis, all kinds. You know, there's lots of stuff going on right now. Maybe a job, maybe financial. Maybe your health. Do everything you can do and trust God. Don't worry. Jesus said, don't worry about anything. He said, you can't by worry change one thing in your life. You can't make one hair come back that's gone away. Because if that'd work, I'd have a lot more hair. You can't change that, but, but you have to pray and trust God. So if you're in the midst of a struggle, in the midst of a crisis like David, I want to tell you, trust God. Do everything you can do. Put it into God's hands. Get a good night's sleep. Father, we believe that we're surrounded. But even though we're surrounded, we're surrounded by you. And he who is greater, he who is with us, is greater than he that is in the world. The armies of the Lord are fighting on our side. The word of the Lord that spoke the worlds into existence is on our side. So, Father, we, we commit it to you in prayer. You know the needs. You know the struggles. You know the pains. You know the difficulties. You know the fears. You know the worries. You know the anxious thoughts in us, Lord. We pray that you would take the anxious thoughts from us, Lord, and turn them into faith. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I love you.